Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. How did Leon Trotsky view revolution and the arts? Because art holds a mirror up to life, many revolutionaries have taken an interest in its role. Trotsky in particular wrote on art, literature and its role in society and politics. Art can be insightful because of its politics or despite them. So how does Marxism, a political theory, have any relation to art? The Russian Revolution led to an explosion in artistic vision. Stalinism stamped it all out. Why? Why did Trotsky struggle to try to bring together revolutionary artists in the 1930s? And what relevance does Trotsky's approach to art and culture hold today? This episode of Socialism looks at revolution and culture. Trotsky and the arts. Earlier this year marked the 80th anniversary of the assassination of Leon Trotsky by agents of the brutal Stalinist dictatorship in the degenerated Soviet Union. And for the 80th anniversary, the Committee for a Workers International produced a new book on the life and ideas of Leon Trotsky. And that covers many of the most monumental contributions which Trotsky made to revolutionary ideas and events as a theoretician and political leader throughout his life and very varied career. But one of the aspects of revolutionary politics which it didn't have space to touch on was the question of the arts. Now this is obviously not the most central question in revolutionary politics, but nonetheless it can play an important supporting role in the workers' movement and the struggle for socialism. So today we have here with us Niall Mulholland from the International Secretariat of the Committee for Workers International. Hello Niall. Hello James. Now as a revolutionary youth, Trotsky wrote on art and literature, and in fact he wrote I think on art and literature throughout his life. He did. But what can Marxism, which is a theory really of the grand sweep of history, how one society changes to the next, how the workers' movement can challenge for power, what can that bring to the subjects of art and literature? Well, Trotsky, like Marx and Engels and Lenin, never tried to impose like a Marxist view of art and literature on artists mm-hmm. or writers who have their own inner laws, as Trotsky said. But that doesn't mean either that Marxists should stand aside and just leave literary critique or the commentary in the arts to academia or to bourgeois critics or so on. Whatever they might bring to it, sometimes insightful and very often not. But, you know, his attitude was unlike the attitude of Marx and Engels, that, of course, Marxists can express an opinion and they can bring a lot to it. Marx and Engels themselves discussed art and literature. They were huge fans of Balzac or Dickens and writers like that during their time. But they also pointed out, as Trotsky later did, that art has its own laws and finds its own course but also that the best art does reflect society. It reflects reality around it. And that can be art of very abstract in a sense, but it still reflects in some way or another society. And Marx and Trotsky favoured art. This is their personal inclinations, but they favoured art that wasn't passive. They favoured art that had honesty, spontaneity and integrity. So, for example, Trotsky also hugely favoured Balzac and Tolstoy. He favoured them over Dostoevsky and Proust Mm -hmm. because he felt that the two latter artists were too, well, navel-gazing, if you like, in the case (laughs) of Proust. And that Dostoevsky's characters in his novels are passive and accept their fate and so on largely. This is put in very bold terms, but that was generally how he looked at those writers. 
And for example, you know, it, sometimes someone's politics doesn't mean that they can't be a great artist. Mm. So for example, Trotsky, when he was young, when he first got involved in the revolutionary movement, wrote a few essays on Tolstoy and, you know, acclaimed Tolstoy and especially War and Peace, his uh, masterpiece. But at the same time, he was critical of Tolstoy's politics, which was a sort of conservative anarchism. It was rebellion, in a sense, against the regime of czarism, but it accepted the sort of cycles of the peasantry and their lives and so on. And he wasn't fighting for socialist society, mm. uh, put it that way. But nevertheless, Trotsky saw huge you know, worth in his works. And the same with Balzac. Trotsky, like Marx, read a great deal of Balzac, who in all his characters, when he looked at 19th century France and society, showed the world as it was at the time. But Balzac was a constitutional monarchist. He was no revolutionary. <laughs> but yet he was absolutely incisive about the rising bourgeoisie in French society and was much more honest about that class than the bourgeoisie were themselves. Mm. And great Marxists could see that in his works. And then also someone like Gorky. Trotsky applauded Gorky, sort of pre-1917, and uh, wrote about him in, before 1917 as well. Afterwards, under Stalinism, Trotsky was quite critical because he said that, unfortunately, Gorky's best work has been done and he has allowed himself to become dominated by the Stalinist system. Just the final thing to say about this part of Trotsky and his youth is that Trotsky himself, of course, was an artist in a sense. He was a great prose stylist. Mm. He was one of the greatest political writers of the last century, and that's recognised way beyond Marxists. I mean, for example, I'll just give here a quote from Edmund Wilson, who was a literary critic in the United States in the 20th century, and was very sympathetic at a certain point in his life towards Trotsky and Trotskyism. But he wrote, when he considered Trotsky's unfinished study of Lenin, and made the point that that book, he said, unfortunately was unfinished, but Wilson called it a most remarkable work, which is probably the most brilliant piece of biography that pure Marxism has ever produced. So he could see, coming from a different political point of view, but he could see the talent that Trotsky had as a writer and a thinker. And I think amongst all the great Marxists, probably Trotsky is the one who was the most engaged in literary and artistic criticism throughout his life. So what Marxism brings to the arts in that sense then is a kind of understanding society without wishing to impose any kind of preconceived political structure on the works of artists who are just reflecting in various different ways different aspects mm. of society. Is that right to say? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. So how did the Russian Revolution change art and culture? Well, it massively changed art and culture, but not just art and culture, all fields of science and thought, every field from architecture to engineering. Everything was influenced by the Russian Revolution, just in the sense that the French Revolution had enormous impact on the whole of society as well. And in the case of the Russian Revolution, with the overthrow of czarism and the introduction of a, a young worker state, it just meant there was a massive liberation for artists and writers and so on. It was obviously very difficult because this was during a period of civil war after the revolution, when capitalist armies tried to quell the revolution. And also there was enormous privations and difficulties facing the working class. So it wasn't easy for the working class to engage in this flowering of artistic culture and so on. But nevertheless, there was real achievements made. People like Mayavosky, the poet, who was a key figure at that time and greatly lauded by Lenin and Trotsky. And Lenin and Trotsky were very keen on cinema at this stage, which was still relatively young. And they could see that the huge role this would have in putting forward ideas that expressed support for the revolution mm. and for socialism. Particularly in a largely illiterate society like Russia was. Yeah, exactly. And that's why they're also very keen on poster art. 
or propaganda, as it was very often, but mm. nevertheless there was an artistic element to it as well. So some of the great poets and artists of the day lent their time and effort into producing art for posters that were, I mean, I read somewhere that these posters could be conceived and designed very quickly over a few days, printed on a mass basis and through the trains, you know, the railways and so on, posted across the country in a matter of days. Mm. And they would be an artistic call to arms, if you like, to support the revolution. And of course, as you said, in those early years of the revolution, when literacy levels were very low amongst the peasantry, and I think even the majority of the working class weren't literate, but a big minority were, until those literacy levels were raised, which they were under the planned economy, the role of the poster and that type of art was very important. So in a broad sense, there was this flowering of art and culture. And then the revolution itself, of course, divided artists as well, because there was a layer who went and supported the white reaction who were opposed to it. They would have been, I think as Trotsky described, largely the noblemen and so on who had dabbled in art mm. and writing. And some of them may have been talented individuals, sure. but their interests, their material interests were tied to the old regime and they went over to the white reaction. A number of them went into exile. But there was others, the fellow travellers, as they were called, who were supportive of the Bolshevik revolution. As Trotsky said, weren't prepared to put their heart and soul into it, <laughs> but they were supportive in the broad sense and they would have come to it with a critical eye and, you know, produced very good art that reflected the situation in Russia at that stage. But it had international ramifications as well. I mean, in the drama, in art and literature and so on, in many fields, you see it just spreading across the world at that stage, particularly in cinema, I think, and drama in the 1920s and the 1930s. And these attempts at bringing the full treasure of human artistic expression to the mass of the population, who in most cases not really had any access to mm. the bulk of it before. You read stories about sports stadiums being filled for poetry mm. readings and this kind of thing, that there was a huge thirst in the mass of the population to engage mm. with this side of human existence which they hadn't had an opportunity to before. So there's that side, but I suppose there's also, as you mentioned, the propaganda, the symbolic power of art, which is not the main thing, obviously, actually holding on to power was, but in order to support that, Lenin and Trotsky, very early after the October insurrection, started a programme to install statues of major revolutionary figures around the country because they were saying, well, look, we don't know how long we're going to be in power. We're talking mm. about days or weeks here before mm -hmm. we're overthrown by the mm -hmm. counter-revolution. Hopefully we can inspire revolutions in other countries around the world. But they threw up statues of figures like Spartacus, mm. the slave rebellion leader, Robespierre from the French Revolution, Marx, mm. to, to try and implement this consciousness in the workers and the masses of Russia that some momentous change mm. of power had taken place before they were removed. Luckily, they weren't removed. <laughs> and they were able to, for a period at least, yeah. extend the revolution. But there were debates as part of that, weren't mm. there? So what was proletarian culture, mm. and why did Lenin and Trotsky oppose it? Mm. Mm. Maybe just before that, it just makes me think when you're talking about statues, there's also the famous case of the Tatlin Tower, mm. which is never actually built. <laughs> and Tatlin was like a... He was an artist and an engineer, and he designed this sort of spiralling tower that would be made out of glass and metal. And this was to be the headquarters and of the Comintern, wasn't it? Was it to be the headquarters of the Third International, mm. and they were meant to be able to meet at the top of it, so you can imagine the size of this structure. <laughs> but it just was never possible to build it, because during the Civil War, the demands were such there wasn't the spare metal to do it, or the resources, or the, or the money at that stage. But interestingly, the tower that was built in the Olympic site in East London in 2012 mm. has a tower that the architect who designed it 
said he was partly influenced by Tatlin's tower. Mm. And if you look at it, you can see the similarity mm -hmm. between the drawings. People can go online and see Tatlin's tower online. And then they should have a look at the pictures of the tower in the Olympic site. Whether the Tory government and the new Labour government that <laughs> give the go-ahead for that whole development realise that was being built there, I, I doubt. But that shows you, in a way, how the long-term impact of the revolution and, you know, the creativity that came out of it. But I think you're right on the issue of different schools of thought, artistic schools of thought. There was very sharp debate after the revolution. There was a flowering of different opinions in all fields of thought and science and technique, and that's a good thing, mm. generally. And sometimes these debates could be very sharp, Sometimes they're quite esoteric or abstract, but sometimes they did really reflect what was happening on the ground. And one of the big debates that took place, and Trotsky took it up in his very famous book at the time, Literature and Revolution, which is a series of articles he put together in the midst of the Civil War, largely, <laughs> when he was leading the Red Army. But of course, it wasn't like an act of dilettantism. This was important to him because he saw it wasn't just a struggle at the front, a military struggle, it's also an ideological struggle mm -hmm. that was necessary to consolidate the revolution. And he took up this issue of what so-called proletarian culture that developed and proletarian art and so on that developed at that stage. And Lenin and Trotsky both strongly opposed it because they said that, in effect, it sort of reflected a sort of anarchism and it reflected ultra-leftism because it basically argued that all bourgeois art or the art of the pre-existing society should just be tossed aside and that the need now was for the working class to develop its own culture and art mm. because the working class is in power. And on the surface that can seem, well, yeah, shouldn't the working class do that? But as Lenin and Trotsky pointed out, a worker's state, when it comes to power, will have to base itself on the best of bourgeois culture, mm. of bourgeois technique. It has to base itself to some degree on the administration that was previously there, but obviously under workers' control and democracy and the best technique under capitalism. Because unless it does that, it can't raise the overall economic level of the country, under a planned economy, of course, under workers' democracy and control, but it can't raise the cultural level either. So in a sense, you know, the proletarian culture and so on, all those arguments, they were trying to jump several stages at once. But it was also, as Lenin and Trotsky pointed out, it was sort of condescending towards the working class as well, mm. as if the working class wasn't capable of taking the best from bourgeois culture, of understanding and reading Shakespeare and so on, for example, and developing that and building on it. And of course, all our art and culture and societies ultimately stand on the shoulders of the best of previous societies. Mm -hmm. So Marxism itself just didn't drop from the sky. Mm -hmm. Marxism came out of overall like thousands of years of thought, starting back with Aristotle and the ancient Greeks, Hegel in the 19th century, and then Marx and Engels themselves, of course, and they stood on the shoulders of thinkers like, for example, Robert Owen and the Utopian Socialists. Mm. But if you Even like... Even Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, that's right. So the idea that you could have the working class come into power in a country which was economically backward and culturally very backward, unfortunately, in Russia in 1917 and just dispense with all bourgeois culture that existed in the past was just utopian and would have been a disaster if the regime had tried to base itself on such a programme. So Lenin and Trotsky strongly opposed those arguments. But at the same time, of course, they said there's big aspects of bourgeois culture that, of course, were reactionary. Sure. That they reflected the ruling class and reflected the ideology of the ruling class and were anti-working class. And, of course, the new regime wasn't going to base itself on that. But they would draw the best thinking from the bourgeoisie intellectuals, if you like, and use that in the service of a young worker state. And therefore, they argued strongly against that school of thought 
And they made the point that also the new Bolshevik regime couldn't give its sort of official blessing to any school of thought in art or literature because that would be the kiss of death to the free expression of art Mm -hmm. and allowing art to be genuinely independent and defined at its own course. And it doesn't mean they didn't have personal interests or inclinations, as everybody does Mm. with art and culture, but it was not the place of a young worker state to say, right, we're back in this school of thought We're going to give it loads of funding and everybody else has to find their own way. Mm. A a genuine socialist state would allow the funding to be there for everybody to express themselves in a communal way, an individual way, of course, as far as art and culture is concerned. And the art and culture that reflected life the best in the most artistic way, well, that would probably be the most popular. Mm. But there should be a place also for other arts and other means. And that's what they were grappling with. But this, of course, always has to be emphasised. This is in a country that had just come out of a thousand years of czarism, Mm. where the majority of the population couldn't even read or write. And they were facing 21 armies of capitalist invasion. And even when the Civil War ended, it was a situation where the working class was exhausted in the 1920s. Some of the best, most advanced layers politically of the working class were unfortunately perished in the Civil War and the World War as well. And, you know, were hungry in many cases. And cities even emptied out to a certain point because people went back to the land to feed themselves. Mm. So it was a desperate situation in which to try and develop any sort of art and culture in this period. But nevertheless, what they did achieve was amazing, really, given those conditions. And indeed, why should the working class and the peasants of Russia, having been kept out of this side of life, of cultural Mm -hmm. engagement, then be denied access to all these things which the middle and upper layers Mm -hmm. of society had had access to for centuries or millennia? Why shouldn't they be allowed to have it? So this school of proletarian culture and similar ultra-left schools of thinking within Mm -hmm. the arts nonetheless did have many positive artistic contributions, didn't Mm -hmm. they, despite the political differences which the Bolshevik leadership had with them. And I'm thinking, for example, of Mayer Holt, who was a theatre maker and, in fact, I think was in charge of theatre in the Soviet Union Mm -hmm. for a certain period as well, who in the end fell foul, and we'll come on to this in a moment, Mm -hmm. of Stalin's purges, Mm -hmm. but came up with a whole new mode of theatrical expression and particularly physicality of movement called biomechanics. And Mm -hmm. I remember personally, (laughs) before I worked for the Socialist Party, I was an actor, and when I was in training at drama school, the head of dance and movement at my drama school taught us Maya Holt's biomechanics and this mm. was almost a century after mm. the October Revolution she was a liberal she was certainly no supporter of any strand of socialist politics but it was such an influential and incredible new contribution to just the art of movement on mm. stage mm. that a century later it was still being taught in Portrait drama schools mm. in mm. effect but having introduced Maya Holt playing this role and then falling foul of Stalin mm. Mm. Of course, it's well known that Stalinism had a restrictive, Mm. shall we say, influence on the arts. What did Stalinism mean then in this field? Mm. Well, Stalinism, as it developed, was well chartered by Trotsky and Revolution Betrayed. And he deals within that book on the influence of Stalinist reaction in the fields of education, science, art and culture. It was written in the early 30s, so it's before Stalinism became totalitarian. But obviously the repression was increasing at that time of the 1930s. And Stalinism, because it bases itself on a ruling bureaucracy, which is narrow at the top, it can't abide any serious opposition. So it can't abide any genuine workers' democracy. And as we know, there's a river of blood, as Trotsky described, between the Bolsheviks and Stalinism. And Stalin used the purge trials to wipe out the old leadership. And then, of course, they built the gulags and so on. And you know, many hundreds of thousands of people perished. So there was a bloody repression of all those forces on the left of Stalin. But also, of course, that type of regime demands obedience from artists and writers. 
And we see it with all types of dictatorships. We see it today. You know, writers or artists in some of the reactionary regimes in the Middle East or Gulf states, for example, cannot express themselves in the same way the writers and artists can do in the West, even with the limits of bourgeois parliamentary democracy. Mm. If they do try and do that, they can run afoul with the regime and pay the consequences. And that's what happened in Russia. So to reflect the Stalinist bureaucracy, and particularly the idea of socialism in one country and so on, they developed the so-called idea of socialist realism. And socialist realism, I mean, I've seen it described once as sort of chocolate box, (laughs) chocolate (laughs) box art, you know, for Stalinism. And if you look at the posters of that period, as Stalin consolidates his rule from the sort of mid to late 30s onwards, there's a big change from the 1920s and the first few years after the revolution when poster art and so on is very imaginative and there's different, the cubism is used and so on and there's different types of art used. If you then look at the art in the late 1930s in particular onwards in the 40s and 50s and 60s and so on in the different Stalinist states, not just Russia, it is very crude. It's like socialist supermen, superwomen and so on and it's there to be at the bidding of the regime and the regime's needs at different times and it was art to order. And once you get into that situation, you're killing art. You're killing the genuine expression of people to produce art. And actually, of course, many artists did perish under Stalinism. I mean, as you say, some of them were driven out of the country and into exile. Mayhild himself was killed, actually. He was killed, yeah. yeah. And there was the, the writer Bebel, I think it's how you pronounce his name, who was perished in the 1930s, who was probably one of the best writers, or short story writers at least, in the period of the 1920s, and wrote very good short stories on the Civil War and the clashes between the Red Army and the Whites. And this is from his own experience. He was involved in that struggle. Mayakovsky, who I mentioned earlier, the poet, he committed suicide in that period of early Stalinism, really as an expression of protest at that point. So to all intents and purposes, the flowering in culture and art that we saw after the revolution in the 1920s was really snuffed out over a period of years under Stalinism. And then if you even look at the you know Marxist literary critique of communist parties, across the world in the post-war period. I mean, there's some interest in commentary made, but a lot of it's very dry. Mm. It's very mechanical. You know, it's not at all like the brilliance we see with Trotsky and how he looked at different art and literature during his life. And in a way, actually, if you look at how art critique and literary critique has developed in the sort of post-war period, the fact that Stalinism was such a dead hand in that field, it opened the room, unfortunately, for other ideas to come forward, which have had a big stamp in the universities and in uh, different institutions like postmodernism, so-called relativism, even ID politics and so on, the way it's expressed in the different fields of institutions and universities. It's not directly because of Stalinism, but Stalinism and some of the defeats it helped create, like France in May 1968, because that didn't lead to a successful revolution. There's a whole layer of intellectuals in France. Some of them were pro-communist party, some even around French Trotskyism at that stage, who became disillusioned and took this road of postmodernism and so on. So the baleful effect of Stalinism in art and culture has cast a very long shadow right up until today. And unfortunately, Stalinism really does mean the end of any genuine independent thinking by artists. Well, of course, this was a process, wasn't it? It was a process within the Soviet Union of stamping out artistic free expression, but also in the common turn, the Communist International in other countries. And you can see, for example, before the Second World War meant that a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries, and particularly East Germany, came under the control of Stalinist-style bureaucratic dictatorships. You do see people who are around the Communist Party, despite the Communist Party's degeneration still. Mm-hmm. Some great artists were involved, and for example, in Germany you have Bertolt Brecht, mm-hmm. who comes up with a theory of 
epic theatre or dialectical theatre mm. it's sometimes called. And what this is, is trying to bring out on stage the massive conflicts and contradictions which Marxists see as driving changes actually in nature but also in society and bring those out explicitly on stage. And that mm. makes a sense. It makes a lot of sense, I think, to theatre makers because mm. there's a saying in the field that drama is conflict. And mm. in fact, really, you could say that all art, to an extent, mm. is based on contrast and conflict. And that mm. would seem to fit very well with Marxism, but at the same time. Mm. You can see, you mentioned at the beginning, Niall, how it's important not to impose mm. Marxism, which is a social science, onto the field of free artistic expression. And you can certainly see in the universities the crudeness of Stalinism mm. and what the universities are pleased to call orthodox Marxism, mm. uh, which really is a rejection of genuine Marxism. Mm. Orthodox is a very telling term, it's really a religious mm. term. But the crudeness of the Stalinist professors, for example, Thompson, Hobsbawm, mm. Hobsbawm himself later laid the theoretical groundwork for Blairism, in fact, after he mm. degenerated even further, but who produced very important works about the history of the working class and so on, but had a very narrow view of the working class. And some academic mm. identity politics, for example, is a reaction against their exclusion mm. of women, black people, and so on from those mm. narratives. But unfortunately, often it's in a non-class direction, missing the full richness of genuine Marxism, of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky, not just in analysis, but also in artistic expression. So why is it that Trotsky struggled to try to bring together revolutionary artists in the 1930s? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sometimes, you know, raises eyebrows at why did Trotsky expend so much time and effort trying to bring together different artists at this stage because he was in exile, he was facing mortal danger, and lots of his family were wiped out, of course, in that stage by Stalinists, or agents of Stalin. And, of course, there was the huge problems of the development of fascism in the 1930s, of Stalinism, and then of capitalist crisis. We so had a lot on his plate. <laughs> and you would think, why would he spend time and effort with some individual, really, artistic figures? But Trotsky saw this as a whole, and he saw that there was a need to try and bring together genuine revolutionary forces, anti-Stalinist forces on the left. So he was prepared to discuss with people who originate from a left anarchist background, mm -hmm. syndicalist background, as he tried to develop the Fourth International. He decided after 1933 with the coming to power of German fascism of Hitler and the fact that the German Communist Party had laid the basis for this and that the whole of the common term hardly a peep of protest went up about this process. He decided he needed to build a new international. It was a Herculean task, to say the least, and the forces he was able to gather around him were relatively small and came from different political backgrounds, so it was complicated in many countries. But he saw the need to try and draw together the best revolutionary artists as part of this process, but also really for the point of view of the honour, if you like, of art and culture as well. Because under fascism, we also saw, a bit like Stalinism, mm. we saw where art was brought in or you know ordered and marshalled by that reactionary regime for its own purposes. Mm. And therefore, there was a need to struggle for genuine artists and culture. And some of the key people that he talked to included Andre Breton, who was a key figure in the Surrealist movement in Europe at that point, and on the left, and Diego Rivera, who was a revolutionary muralist in, in Mexico, Mexico, in Mexico, yeah. and Frida Kahlo was his partner for a period, who a lot of people, of course, know of today. And they were very sympathetic to Trotsky and Trotsky's ideas, and as were a number of intellectuals, actually, and artists at that time. I mean, there's what they called the New York intellectuals in the 1930s, and a number of them, particularly through the magazine Partisan Review, came around Trotskyism. A number of them joined the Socialist Workers' Party, led by James P. Cannon, in America at that stage. So Trotskyism had a powerful force, amongst the layer of the population as well as not just the working class militants. And it was important to try and draft these people together. And Trotsky drew up 
with Breton mainly, the manifesto called Towards a Free Revolutionary Art. Mm. It's commonly thought that Trotsky wrote the majority of that document, but still there was the important collaboration with other people like Breton in the development of that manifesto. And, you know, I think there's a very good phrase in it, I'll just, I'll just paraphrase what Trotsky says in it, where he really spells out the need for what he called true art mm. at that time, when, you know, mankind or humankind faced a very dark situation in the 1930s. And Trotsky said, true art is not content to play with variations on ready-made models, but rather insists on expressing inner needs of man and mankind in its time. True art is unable not to be revolutionary not to aspire to a complete and radical reconstruction of society. So I think that sums up very well the purpose of that manifesto and genuine art, if you like, at that stage. And that was important that Trotsky did that. And that document holds out very well today, even from the point of view of its critique of capitalism, not just fascism or Stalinism, but capitalism, how because of private ownership, because of patronage, because of the grant system inside universities and so on, it's even worse today. There is not a genuine open creativity in any fields in these institutions. They can only exist on the basis of patronage and funding from billionaires and oligarchs and so on, which is the case for many public institutions, so-called, and universities around the world today. But that's a very important document. And then linked in with that, Trotsky actually helped form the International Federation of Independent Revolutionary Art in 1938. That was the same year that the Fourth International was formally declared as well. Mm. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think Trotsky was quite clear what he was doing there, that he was assembling together the best worker militants and genuine Bolsheviks in a number of countries. But he also had an eye on the artistic movement and the best artists, most revolutionary artists, who wouldn't all have necessarily joined the Fourth International, but would have been friends of that movement. And he saw it's very important to try and draw the two things together. Unfortunately, the outbreak of World War II and then, of course, Trotsky's death in 1940 cut across, really, the development of the attempt of this Federation of Independent Revolutionary Art. But nevertheless, I think the legacy is very important, including for today. So what relevance does Trotsky's approach to art and culture hold for socialists and workers today? I think in broad terms it has a lot of relevance. If you look at the situation today, there's probably never been a situation where so many books are published. I think I read somewhere a week or so ago in one day or one week in Britain there's 600 books produced. There's never been a situation, I think, there's been so many movies made and we now have things streamed. We have Netflix, Now TV, Amazon, all these things which are producing you know, many TV programmes, series and so on. And very often the special effects and so on are amazing and state of the art and much better than they ever have been before. But I think it's also the case to say that really, you know, have we ever been in a situation where there's been such a paucity of quality? And we've had to look at so many dramas, for example, on Netflix. That I, you know, in my opinion, so much of it's superficial mm. and, you know, doesn't really probe at all human consciousness or society in any meaningful way. And if you look at, you know, so-called popular art and so on, like an American action movie, it's just most of the underlying sort of theme is reactionary. Mm. And it's either, you know, for example, today it would be anti-Russian or anti-Chinese because that's the attitude of the ruling class, not just the Republicans, but the Democrats as well in reality. But they're also, you know, play up the role of the individual to the point of view of trying to exclude the role of the class and how class has changed society and so on. So I think there's a crisis of art that exists today in the general sense. And that reflects the rottenness of capitalism today, where the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, no longer sees itself playing a progressive role in any field. It doesn't pretend to see itself playing a progressive role. That's why we have people like Trump and Johnson in power in major capitalist countries 
If you look back on the period of the bourgeois revolutions and afterwards, they produced some of the greatest thinkers, some of the greatest artists, some of the greatest writers, some of the greatest dramatists of all time. So going back to Shakespeare, and that mm. was the early rise of mercantile capitalism yeah. in Elizabethan Britain. Or Beethoven. Or Beethoven. You look at the 19th century, the novels, the plays, the drama, the artists, the painters that that period produced over one or two centuries of the rise of the bourgeois state and the modern novel and so on. These were big, big strides forward in culture for the masses. Unfortunately, a lot of people couldn't read or or get to see some of these works, of course. But nevertheless, in general terms, from the point of view of humankind, these are big steps forward. And we do not see that today. And we don't even see a serious approach in many ways. I mean, where is the equivalent of Charles Dickens today? Mm. You know, a great writer who is looking at society squarely in the face. They don't have to be a revolutionary. They don't have to be a socialist, but just looking no, at Dickens society. Wasn't. And Dickens wasn't. He was a sort of liberal yeah. in most issues <laughs> during his lifetime. And of course, as Marxists, we don't demand that artists have to serve things up for our interests sure. or for propagandistic reasons. But for an artist to be genuine, they have to approach the work with nuance and with honesty. And that is not seen, I think, in many fields today. I mean, we shouldn't perhaps be one-sided about this. There is nonetheless still great art produced today, even in these generally abysmal circumstances. And you might think, for example, in the field of television, programmes like The Wire, which is a remarkable contribution to TV history and so on. But the social layers which are able to contribute are increasingly narrow, and that in itself compounds the crisis of the quality of the art. If the great mass of the population, the workers and the poor, are not able to reflect their experiences, then that can only have a restricting influence Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's some good TV out there, some good drama, but it is some, in my opinion. (laughs) I mean, at the moment, I've just finished watching Succession with Brian Cox, which is basically based on a Murdoch-type ruling newspaper dynasty, and it just shows how dysfunctional they are, how they're all on the make. It's all about avarice and, you know, really just turning over everybody else in their own class interests. It does that very, very well. Where I think it's something like that falls down is that the masses, the working class, even their employees are largely off screen. Mm. And when they are brought into the drama, they're just easily dealt with in mm. reality by the tops. And of course, we know it's more complicated than that. And people organise themselves in unions and have struggles. But nevertheless, it's a good programme and it's definitely worth watching. I thought The House of Cards was good as well, mm. which because at least based on the British show originally, mm. and it showed the manoeuvrings by the different parts of the political establishment to base themselves in capitalism. So I, I agree, there can be very good work done at the present time. And there has been over decades. I mean, when I grew up in the 1970s and 80s, Play for Today was very good mm. and could be very cutting edge. I get the feeling then there was more openness to people with more radical ideas, being able to be involved in the process of producing drama mm. and different series. You know, people like Ken Loach cut his teeth in those types of programmes and some of the other very good writers who came from, a, some of them from a Trotskyist background originally. Mm. Today... You know better than me, but it seems in many ways things are more closed for working class people, particularly in the acting profession. Yeah. And there's been a lot of criticism about this. Julie Walters mm-hmm. has said in an interview I heard that she doesn't think she could have made it as an actress today mm. because she was working class. She was able to get through the route of, I think it was the Everyman Theatre, was it, in mm-hmm. Liverpool, which is open to working class people at that time. And that's much more narrowed now. Not impossible, but it's much more narrowed. And therefore, acting and the top acting roles are dominated by really a handful of people. From the top public schools. From top public schools. Private schools, rather. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
And, you know, I think it shows as well. I think it even shows in their acting to degree because they don't have that breadth of experience and life and so on behind them. So there's... No, that's true. In an early period when the workers' movement off the back of a boom in capitalism mm. but also trade union militancy, the example of the admittedly degenerated Soviet Union but the idea of an alternative society, mm. that political and social pressure was able to command from capitalism mm. for some period more funding... Mm but also better living and working conditions mm-hmm. for the working class in general, so that you had more free time and energy mm-hmm. to participate mm-hmm. in the arts, and that combination of factors led to things like play for today, as well as forcing the bourgeois institutions like the BBC, which ultimately is part of the capitalist state, it's not neutral, mm-hmm. to give a little bit more space to the ideas mm-hmm. of the workers' movement and so on. So actually, even within capitalism, workers' struggle can open up more space for that, but would you say that we should not see simply opening up more space within capitalism as the end goal? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the situation, generally speaking, across the arts and culture, but baleful at times when you look at it, but we're not pessimistic either. Mm. I mean, like you say, the gains that are won in the past that opened up the road for more working class people to be engaged in art and culture and so on was through struggle. And struggle will take place again. There was an interesting programme I saw a couple of weeks ago on BBC4 and it was about the romantics and how they reacted to political developments in their lifetime. It discussed Shelley and some of Shelley's brilliant poems against the regimes at that time. And, of course, Shelley quoted by Jeremy Corbyn frequently in his campaign, Rise Like Lions After Slumber. That's right, and Shelley was a revolutionary. He wanted Mm. to see revolutionary change. And then they cut to young graffiti artists in Paris who were saying that for them, as far as they're concerned, everything's closed off. They can't progress because they don't have the money, they don't have the network. A lot of it is networking, of course, and that favours the upper petty bourgeois and the bourgeoisie themselves. But they were doing their own street art, which is very good. And they were saying that what's needed is, you know, we need Shelleys, we need that sort of development to take place. And I think there will be change in the fields of art and culture, just as there will be in the workers' movement. And the workers' movement itself, of course, is a long history of working-class people engaging in arts and culture. And we saw in the past, you know, in Britain, for example, many clubs and societies come out of the early labour movement that developed over a period of time. And I think we need a reawakening of that. And that will take place as workers get involved in struggle. And, you know, we can push as far as we can under capitalist society, but ultimately any society is dominated by its ruling elite. And that ideology dominates. And under capitalism, it's going to be capitalism. Under a worker state, it's the working class that runs society. And we have a totally different situation. There's not a coercion of the working class, of the mass of the population. And they'll have the room and resources to fully develop themselves, you know, artistically. And Trotsky made quite a famous quote when he talked about swine herds, you know, people who look after the pigs and the swines, saying as many swine herds are sitting in thrones and how many potential artistic geniuses are having to be swine herders. Of course, what he meant was that for the vast majority of people through the whole of human existence, they've not had the opportunity to develop themselves artistically. As you were saying, you need time to do these things. Engels made the point that philosophy develops once you've got a roof over your head and food on your table. Mm. Then you can think and contemplate. In the broad sense, we know what he means, and that's the same with society today. Particularly people doing three or four different jobs, precarious working, you know, getting their kids to school, all the demands that society has, which have been made worse, of course, by COVID and the lockdown and the approach of the capitalist governments towards that health crisis. It just means people are exhausted at the end of the day. The best they can do in many cases is slump in front of the TV and just stick on whatever's on and watch it. Mm. They do not have the hours of the day that's needed to really develop themselves and then play a part in overall artistic development and so on. But that will come in a worker's state. But we fight for it today as well. Mm. We have you know, demands as far as art and culture is concerned. 
But ultimately, unless you change society fundamentally, have a socialist reorganisation of society, the mass of the population will never be in a situation, tragically, that they will be able to contribute in a meaningful way in art and culture, generally speaking. So I should just perhaps remark here as well that notwithstanding Niall's comments about the politics of action films, there's nothing wrong with a bit of fun. <laughs> In fact, Brecht, too, I should remark as well, was a bit of a checkered character, both artistically and politically. We wouldn't want to hold him up individually as any kind of saint. But he did remark about theatre. Theatre requires no other passport but fun, but this it has got to have. That is an answer to those who see the arts purely as a vehicle for politics. It must also say something about society, the human condition, and be enjoyable. I think, but perhaps it's worth then closing with the concluding words of the Manifesto for Free Revolutionary Art, drafted by Trotsky, co-signed by Rivera and Diego, that our programme is the freedom of art for the revolution and the revolution for the final liberation of art. Yes, very good. <laughs> <laughs> now, thanks very much. Thank you, James. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party. The England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Niall Mulholland and I'm James Irons. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.